The book is titled The Lords of Easy Money. It's subtitled How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. The author is Christopher Leonard, the current director of the Watchdog Writers Group at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. The publisher of his new book, Simon & Schuster, claims on the book flap, quote, If you ask most people what forces led to today's income inequality and financial crisis, no one would say the Federal Reserve, close quote. Author Leonard explains why so few people understand the language or inner workings of how American money is managed by a seven-member board in Washington, D.C. Christopher Leonard, in your book, The Lords of Easy Money, you have a person named John Feltner from Indianapolis. Why did you put him in your book? I put him in my book because I I feel that his story illuminated one of the most important things I was trying to explore. I'm really trying to describe what happened in America economically over the last decade, between 2010 and 2020. And the Federal Reserve, the central bank, was really critical to the story. And, And the Fed seems like something that's kind of obscure or removed from our everyday lives. But in reality... The Fed is critically important uh, to to our everyday lives and to our economy. And over the last decade, the Fed has undertaken this series of unprecedented, really far-reaching experiments in money creation. And John Feltner is a guy who lives in Indianapolis, who had a blue-collar manufacturing job, belonged to a labor union, and he kind of experienced on the ground the repercussions of the Fed's actions. And, you know, I guess in short, the headline is that the Fed has created massive amounts of new money. It's kept interest rates at zero. And these policies have encouraged a certain kind of economy. And it's an economy that I don't think has worked well at all for people like John Feltner. It hasn't benefited wage earners. It hasn't benefited workers, but it's really benefited Wall Street. And it's benefited financial engineers. And, and quite unfortunately, Mr. Feltner's story shows shows the downside of this. You know, his, his company was loaded down with cheap corporate debt. Uh, it was forced to make layoffs and, and he eventually lost his job. So it's sort of a case study in the downsides of easy money is what I'd say. How'd you find him? Oh, my gosh, that's a great question. Um You know, the answer is a little convoluted but interesting in the sense that, you know, it started because I'm I'm writing about the the current chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, better known as Jay Powell. He's been uh, chairman since the Trump administration until now. And what's so fascinating about Jay Powell is he's the richest chairman of the Fed, probably the richest in history. And he got his start. He, he started his career in the world of private equity. He, he was a senior partner at, at one of the most powerful private equity firms in the country called uh, Carlyle Group out of Washington, D.C. And, you know, private equity, you hear the term a lot. I just think of, of private equity dealmakers as debt engineers. Guys like Jay Powell are very good at borrowing large sums of, of corporate debt in the form of leveraged loans and then going out and buying companies and, and loading the debt onto those companies and then, you know, sort of selling the companies later for a big profit. And and when I looked at Jay Powell's career, I saw his biggest deal, the, the most profitable deal, the one that really made him rich, was a buyout of this industrial company uh, based out of Milwaukee called Rexnord. And it, it's kind of your classic old school American old line company. And... Jay Powell and Carlyle Group loaded it down with debt to the point where the company's interest payments were higher than its profits for a decade. And so I examined, you know, what happened to this company and how the, the world of financialization kind of interacts with the world of the real economy. And, and Rexnord is that company where John Feltner worked. So it, it was kind of an extraordinary case of, first of all, talking about Jay Powell's background and then sort of carrying it forward through time to examine who wins and who loses uh, in, in a system like this. And so that's where John Feltner worked, and uh, that's why I was looking at his career. 
Well, I want to follow up by just saying again, how did you find him? Oh, a great story. Um, you know, uh, I did a lot of deep archival research on, on Rex Nord. And as always, one of the greatest resources in the world is a local newspaper. Uh, the Milwaukee Sentinel, I believe, uh, is, is the main paper in Milwaukee. And I was reading through local news clips and read about a factory closure, a Rex Nord factory closure in one of their big plants in Indianapolis. And, and this was just a classic case study in the ravages of private equity. Uh, they had to close this, this giant factory because there was too much debt and they were looking to cut costs. And the local the local news story in the Indianapolis Star and and the Milwaukee papers had interviewed this guy John Feltner uh, along with others and so I called them at home and kind of expanded on on what had been written and and heard his life story. What happened directly to him when they closed the Rexnord factory in Indianapolis? You know, it was really it was really tragic. Um, Feltner is one of these guys who seems very well suited to survive in our economy. He, he was always up for retraining himself. You know, he'd been he, he was born and raised in Indianapolis. So he kind of entered this blue collar manufacturing economy when it was at its peak, uh, kind of in, in the 70s and onward. But he experienced the story we all know so well today, which is sort of the decline of that steady blue collar labor uh, union organized job. And, and so he'd be laid off. He would get retrained, get a new job, get laid off from that. And, and that kind of series of, of layoffs culminated with the Rexnord layoff in 2010. Uh, I'm sorry, 2016, which um, was very interesting. It got a lot of national attention because of uh, the presidential candidate Donald Trump uh, made a really big deal out of trying to stop the job losses at Rexnord and, and a, a nearby uh, air conditioning factory carrier. And Trump really brought national headlines to that. But it, it didn't work at all in the sense that they still closed the plant, still lost the job. And so Feltner cast around for another job. But I think it really showed how how decimated the manufacturing base has been in America and in the Midwest. And he eventually, I think he got a job at a grocery store after that doing maintenance and then got a job where he still is, as far as I know, uh, doing maintenance for a hospital. And to me, the salient point here is that with each job, Feltner took a, a pay cut. Uh, and then he's earning less today than he earned at his prior job or the job before that. And it really shows how the middle class in America, wage earners in America, have been at best limping sideways and in a real way kind of sinking lower and lower on the economic ladder. While at the same time, I just have to reemphasize this point, through the Fed's policies, the very richest of the rich on Wall Street, the biggest of the big banks, the people who own stocks and real estate have been doing extraordinarily well. Stick with Jay Powell. Rex Nord and John Feltner. If you say Feltner ended up with several different jobs and less money, what happened in this kind of a deal where Carlisle was involved and Jay Powell was running that company? How did he do financially out of the closing of Rex Nord? Thank you for asking about this. It's incredible. So Jay Powell organized the buyout of Rex Nord in 2002. And, and as I kind of mentioned earlier, the way you do this in the private equity business is you syndicate loans and, and you know, you have good connections with banks and then you use those loans to buy the company. That's how he bought Rexnord through Carlisle Group. But critically, the debt is put onto the company itself. So Carlisle Group under Jay Powell buys this firm Rexnord, but then Rexnord faces the job of paying down the debt. So Carlisle purchases Rexnord in 2002. Jay Powell joins the board of directors and helps run the company. And, and as always with private equity, the way they run it is they look to cut costs. They, you know, they look to cut wages. They look to streamline manufacturing. And then they looked for ways to borrow even more money 
using Rexnord as the vehicle to carry the debt. They looked for ways to borrow even more money to do acquisitions or to add on other firms. So by 2005, Rexnord has assumed hundreds of millions of dollars in new debt, but it's also been kind of reshaped to be more attractive as, as sort of a private equity vehicle. And J. Powell and Carlisle Group sell Rexnord. I believe in 2006, they finally sell it to another private equity firm called Apollo Group. And Carlisle earns hundreds of millions of dollars. I think it's in the neighborhood of $900 million, the exact numbers in the book. But just by owning this firm for a few years, they flip it and the Carlisle Group owners make hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, I interviewed people at Carlisle. It's unclear what Jay Powell's direct take from that profit was, but it, it was certainly in the tens of millions of dollars. I, I think he listed his net worth north of $50 million when, when he became chairman of the Fed. So it worked out quite well for Carlisle and for Jay Powell. But what's interesting to me is to follow that company afterwards. Uh, again, for the next decade, this firm, Rexnord, is, is loaded with debt. It, it's paying huge interest fees on this corporate debt. And, and fascinatingly, you know, the people who really make money off of this are the private equity owners and the Wall Street dealmakers who are sort of repackaging and reselling Rexnord corporate debt time and time again during the 2010s and earning millions of dollars in fees while the company itself is, is it, you know, struggling is really the only way to put it. That's why by the time you fast forward to 2016, the, the executive team that runs Rexnord at this point is looking for ways to cut costs. So they, they closed down John Feltner's factory. They moved that work to Mexico where it's cheaper. And, and you know, at the end of the day, the real money has been made at the executive suite of Rexnord at the headquarters of the Apollo Group private equity firm that bought them, and on Wall Street, where the dealmakers were sort of packaging and reselling the corporate debt that fueled the whole thing. How concerned do you see with these private equity companies about the people that work there and their future? Well, you know, I'll put it in the words of John Feltner himself. Um, it's it's kind of, I got to be honest, it's kind of dispiriting. Uh, you know, Feltner now, as I said, works at a large hospital doing maintenance, and he's got kids who he's helping, you know, put through college, and it's very important to him that they learn a good work ethic. And Feltner told me that he feels like workers have just become another commodity to be bought and sold. I mean, listen, I think it's, it's well understood at this point that jobs are just like pawns on, on a chessboard, and you know, I, I closely examined the way the, the leadership team at Rexnord looked at their own company and the way they examined their own manufacturing operations and, and the way they decided to cut jobs and move production to Mexico. And, and jobs are seen as a very, like, interchangeable, fungible commodity. Uh, there's, there's not only is there no personal level to it or, or, or a commitment to the, like, personal welfare of of employees there's there's truly no no sense of obligation or commitment to the communities where these companies are based i mean indianapolis and indiana did all it could to keep these jobs i, I would like to point out that mike pence was governor a former governor of indiana and was on the ticket with donald trump but still couldn't get those jobs to stay in the community and uh yeah you know it's, it's the story of of our era i think where this sort of capitalism that we that exists today is focused on returning the highest possible return to the owners, regardless of the secondary damage it might create on the ground. By the way, what did Rex Nord make in the Indianapolis plant? Okay, this sounds simple, but believe it or not, they made ball bearings. Uh, this is what's so interesting. This is one of those companies that makes the things that make the world work. Rexnord was a 100-year-old company. It made conveyor belts. 
and in uh, conveyor belts, other machinery that's put into factories. In Indianapolis, they made these extremely uh, uh, highly engineered and sophisticated ball bearings that would be used in, in aircraft or manufacturing products. So, I mean, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm right that some of these bear, ball bearings cost hundreds of dollars a, a bearing. I looked through an old, old catalog that they had, and I think I've got that price right. It's in the book. But uh, this is kind of very highly engineered bread and butter of, of, of a manufacturing sector that, you know, used to be sort of, you know, used to underpin the manufacturing sector in the United States, but that we have been sort of hoving off and, and, and shipping overseas steadily for decades. When a company like Rexnard moves to Mexico, what's the difference in the per hour wage from what people were paid in Indiana versus what they're paid in Mexico? Less than half, less than half. I mean, the, 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 the wage savings were, were enormous. And, um, you know, the, the dollar figures are in the book. It's, it's less than half, and it's a fraction of what the organized. That's really important. I mean, these folks belong to a labor union that didn't just bargain for higher pay and better retirement benefits in Indianapolis, but also, you know, for, for working conditions, for, for safety conditions, for better uh, autonomy over, over your job and the ability to ask for time off. I mean, these are all things that existed in, in Wisconsin, in Indianapolis, in, in Indiana, in these sort of North American manufacturing facilities. And, you know, it's been reported another author named um, Farah Stockman at the New York Times wrote a really good book about this called American Made. And she and other news outlets reported how, you know, the employees at, in Indianapolis, like John Feltner, uh, were asked to actually train their replacements um, and, and show them how to use the very large, sophisticated machines. And, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, there, there were millions of dollars saved per year just on the labor costs alone to shift these jobs uh, overseas. Christopher Leonard lives where? Uh, I live in Kansas City. Uh I was born and raised in Kansas City, and as a reporter, kind of kicked around the, the Midwest for a lot of my career, and then moved out to Washington, uh, D.C. in 2012, lived out there for about a decade, and just moved back to the Midwest. Um, you know, I love it here. Uh, a lot of family, a lot of friends in this community. Needless to say, it's a little bit easier to get around, a, a little bit more affordable for housing. So that's where I'm calling home these days. What's the group that you form, Watchdog Writers Group, do? The Watchdog Writers Group, it, it's a nonprofit investigative reporting center based at the University of Missouri. Now, I mentioned earlier that I had moved to Washington, D.C. I moved out there uh, to take a fellowship that, that with the New America Foundation that supported my writing. Uh, my, my previous book, Before the Lords of Easy Money, was a, a really, frankly, kind of a long book about Coke Industries, K-O-C-H. It was called Coke Land. And I, I found that this sort of nonprofit-funded journalism model was really uh, key and vital to, to write a book. And I, books are they, – they just fill a critical niche in, in our media ecosystem. I mean, you know very well that the, the print reporting industry writ large – has just collapsed during my career. I mean, it all started to fall apart in 2008. The, the, the destruction has only accelerated from 2012. And I am a very, very vehement supporter of print journalism, investigative journalism, and the form of the book. I, I think books can do things that daily print reporting just can't do. You can spend years on a topic, you can go really deep, you can put it in historical context, and so that's why I formed this thing called the Watchdog Writers Group here in Missouri, because I felt like there was this real burning need to have a fellowship program like this in the middle of the country, where 
our media institutions have been even more damaged than, than they have been on the coast over the last decade. So at the Watchdog Writers Group, we give a stipend or a grant to authors. Like one of our authors is a woman named Pamela Koloff. She writes for the New York Times, a magazine and ProPublica. She needed to step away from her day job for a couple of years to do a book about the problems in the criminal justice system and then problems with prosecutorial misconduct and the use of jailhouse informants. So we can support her during that time to go really deep on a book. And then the, the, the second component is we hire graduate students at the University of Missouri, and they act as reporters to work with an author like Pam. So the students are getting real-world training they're, they're getting they're going to produce stories of their own. And, and in essence, what we're trying to do here is support and, and kind of reinvigorate deep print journalism and investigative journalism in this time when the market really isn't supporting it. So I've been really honored to be part of the Watchdog Writers Group here. Who funds it? We are funded primarily by the Schmidt Family Foundation, uh, which is run, as you know, I'm sure, by like Eric and Wendy Schmidt. Eric Schmidt was a former CEO of Google. And their foundation supports a lot of causes, including journalism. Um, I've been funded by the Schmidts for years. They funded my fellowship at the New America Foundation. And, and I mean, it might sound predictable for me to say this, but the sincere truth is they've been absolutely fantastic journalism funders. Uh, Wendy Schmidt was a journalism major in college. I feel like she really gets it. She gets the importance of print journalism and the importance of editorial independence, which is critically important to me. So the Schmidt Foundation funds this center through the University of Missouri, which has very tight ethical standards and guidelines that maintain our institutional independence and the independence of the author's and then, you know, it's my job to go out and, and, and make the program more sustainable. And we've been really lucky to work with the William T. Kemper Foundation in Kansas City, which is a major uh, – they've given us grants now for two years to support uh, journalists and students. And so, you know, we're always working to, to keep this thing not just sustainable but growing is, is what we hope to do. Back to the Fed, how big is it? Where does it – where does it – have its offices, and it. Yeah. And if you work at the Fed, do you get a check where it says at the top, United States government? Fascinating question. The, the, I think your your paycheck is going to say Federal Reserve System, and 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 you know your question is: Is the Fed a government agency? Is it a private bank? What is this thing? Well, it's one of the strangest creations in American governance. I call it kind of like a, a genetic mix-up of a private bank and a government agency. Um, we created the Federal Reserve in 1913, uh, and we created the central bank to do two key things. First, to create and manage the American currency, the dollar, which if you look at the fine print, the dollar is actually a Federal Reserve note. So the Fed creates and manages our currency. And then the Fed is also supposed to be kind of the, the lender of last resort, if you will, the sort of backstop for all the banks in the United States. So the Fed can stop banking panics by, you know, printing money and, and loaning it to banks when there's a crisis. Interestingly, the Fed is a very American central bank. We, we structured it to kind of reflect our country in the sense that the Fed – is really a network of 12 regional banks, which you could think of as like American states. You know, you, you got these 12 banks that go, you know, they're San Francisco, Texas, Missouri, Boston. These 12 banks form a big system together, and then they have their capital. The, the, the headquarters is in Washington, D.C., and, and that's where the, the, the Fed chairman like Jay Powell works with a government-appointed body of governors who's sort of like a committee that run this system. So the Fed has always been this sort of mix. It, it's privately owned. The banks actually own the Federal Reserve, but it's run by a government committee that's appointed by the, the Senate. And, the you know, I think the central thing, the, the reason the Fed was built this way 
is the, the job of managing currency is super important. And, and the founders of the Fed wanted to create an institution that wasn't like Congress. It, it wasn't run by a group of people who have to face election every two years. The, the Fed is run by a committee of, of 12 people that are not accountable to voters. And, and the idea there is so they can make hard decisions, they can think long term, and, and they can you know, make the hard choices that are necessary to, to effectively manage a currency. Well, as you know, there are seven board members of uh, the Fed here in Washington. They served for 14 years. And the head, Jay Powell, only makes a couple hundred thousand dollars compared to, say, Dr. Fauci making $400,000. So if this institution controls how our money is being spent in the United States, why do they pay them so little, and why do they give them 14-year assignments? Hmm. Great question. And so you bring up a good point. I talked about that capital building for the Federal Reserve in D.C., and, and you're, you're exactly right. There's a, the board of seven governors who are led by the chairman, and then each of those regional banks has a president. And, and when I talked about a committee of 12 people, this is a little bit confusing, but those board of governors sit on a committee that makes the all-important policy choices at the Fed. Those, when you hear about the Fed getting together to raise or lowest, lower interest rates, it's this committee of 12 people that includes the governors and the regional bank presidents. The presidents have rotating seats. There are only five of them that sit on this committee of 12. Okay, so you've got your chairman, you got your governors, you got your regional bank presidents. They sit on this committee. They make just... I can't overstate how important their decisions are, uh, how, how, how hugely impactful these decisions are on our everyday life. And, and so, you know, your question is, uh, well, gosh, I mean, they're earning less than the CEO of Rexnord, probably. I mean, if you really get down to it, um, look, it's, it's it's very interesting. First of all, most of these folks come from the, the private sector. As I mentioned earlier, you know, Jay Powell is an extraordinarily wealthy individual already. Uh, and so I think he would see his service at the Fed as a, as a public service. But then, you know, he's a bit of an anomaly. His, his predecessor, Janet Yellen, was certainly no millionaire. I don't believe she was when she became chairwoman of the Fed. Her predecessor, Ben Bernanke, uh, was also not as wealthy. Both of them came from the world of academia. Both have done quite well after their term at the Fed. Janet Yellen earned, I think, $7.2 million uh, giving speeches uh, you know, to, to clients, including Wall Street banks, between her 10 years chair, chairwoman of the Fed and then her return to the Treasury Department. So it's like you can earn money after the Fed. That's for sure. But the idea is that these are public servants. It's, it's considered a government service job. And the tenure of 14 years is critical to this point. The idea always was the Fed will be insulated from politics. Uh, you know, you'll have these people who serve a 14-year 14 ter- uh, term. They're not going to be having to raise campaign money or think about their election, and, and critically, they're going to have the ability to do the hard thing. And this is really important for where we are today. Inflation is, I think, raging is really the only word you can use for it. Inflation's at 8%, and the Fed is facing these extremely hard choices. If you fight inflation, you can cause a recession. If you make money too cheap for too long, you can create a financial market crash. The idea behind this government committee of public servants who serve 14 years, the idea is that they can make the really hard decisions that are necessary for the long-term health of the currency. What does it say, and you write about all these people, uh, give us your view, you're out there in the Midwest, go back to 79 to 87, Paul Volcker was the chairman of the Fed, and he went to Princeton and Harvard, 
After him, Alan Greenspan from 87 to 2006, he was New York University. Ben Bernanke was Harvard and MIT from 2006 to 2014. Janet Yellen was Brown and Yale, 2014 to 2018. And Jay Powell was Princeton and Georgetown. Yeah. It's, well, for, you know, first of all, like, I'm a book nerd. I'm a huge fan of education. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to get an Ivy League education, and that's that's wonderful. Um, it, however, this points toward a very important and I think very interesting culture at the Federal Reserve. And I'm trying to think about how to articulate this, but you're 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 exactly right that this this organization, this institution, does tend to be dominated by not, not just folks who are coming from the Ivy League and the elite institutions, but by economists, uh, people who are, who are trained as economists. Now, Jay Powell is an exception. He came from the world of private equity. I believe Paul Volcker was an exception. He, he was not a trained PhD economist, but he was, you know, between Volcker and Powell, they were all PhD economists. And, it, it 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 has a real effect. Like, you know, the main character of, of the first half of the book is a Fed regional president named Thomas Honig. Now, he wasn't Ivy League. He was a Ph.D. economist, but his Ph.D. was from Iowa State. And I don't want to belabor the point, but I do think it's significant that this guy, Thomas Honig, was the longest serving official at the Federal Reserve back in, in 2010 when the Fed decided to undertake a, a decade's worth of pretty extraordinary experiments of you know keeping interest rates pinned at zero while simultaneously creating trillions of new dollars inside the banking system through this experimental program created by Ben Bernanke that's called quantitative easing. I mean, the Fed really redrew the system during the 2010s. And this guy, Tom Honig, you know, PhD from Iowa State, was warning against it. In fact, staked his whole career on trying to stop it. And the reason why is that Honig had been at the Fed since 1972. He was the longest serving um, <clears throat> Federal, Federal Reserve official at the time in 2010 when he made a string of no votes and, and dissenting votes. And he'd seen firsthand the damage that can be caused by the Federal Reserve when it keeps interest rates too low for too long, let alone printing trillions of new dollars. But Honig, you know, not just was he marginalized for saying no and for voting no and for trying to stop this. I really think it's fair to say he was maligned. And he was maligned in a specific way of sort of being unsophisticated or not having an appropriate appreciation for the very complex models that the Fed was developing to sort of justify their their programs. And I do think there's a culture inside the Fed dominated by these economists, and this is well documented, it's not just me saying it, but these economists have a lot of power and there's a certain hubris, I think, that comes along with it, this, this faith in the economic models and, and the sort of power of these these people to to command to to command the the currency supply in, in a way that that gives that that really expands the Fed's intervention. In other words, PhD economists like Bernanke and Yellen felt quite secure in in breaking the previous bonds that were on the Fed and expanding its footprint and in undertaking unprecedented experiments. This is a town where politicians, elected representatives of the people on all sides of the spectrum, say frequently, all we care about is the that the life of people in this country is fair, equal, objective, and that uh, people... Uh, get a chance to live a good life. And the reason I lead up with this is 
since about 2000, and as you know, 8 or 10 in that area, it's been basically zero interest rates at banks. And if you don't like the market and you don't want to play with stocks and all that, you've earned nothing with your money. And you'd never hear anybody talk about that except on rare occasions. How much of that is the responsibility of the Fed and how can they keep those interest rates for all these years so low when so few people on fixed incomes can't make a penny? Okay. This was the critical debate with which the book opens, this debate that was happening in 2010. It's so fascinating. I mean, part of the story here is that our democratic institutions are, as you well know, they're, they're defined by dysfunction, paralysis. It's no coincidence that in 2010 that the Tea Party gained control over the House of Representatives essentially shut down action in our, our democratic institutions like Congress. So you've got this brilliant Fed chairman in, in, in Ben Bernanke who's arguing back in 2010 you know, we need to be bold. We need to take experiments. We need to take risks. And specifically, we need to keep interest rates pegged at zero, and we need to print hundreds of billions of new dollars in the Wall Street system through this program called quantitative easing. And and the guy we were talking about earlier, Thomas Honig, who was, you know, president of the Kansas City Regional Fed Bank, the argument he was making is warning against exactly what you just described, which is that in this kind of environment, if you keep interest rates at zero and you pump all this money into the Wall Street banking system, first of all, you're, you're punishing people trying to save money. And, and when I say people trying to save money, I mean pension funds like the Kentucky Retired Teachers Association or, or CalPERS or these groups that they're managing pension investments and retirement investments. You know, all of a sudden, with interest rates so low, they can't really earn money as they used to do, just saving it in, for example, a United States Treasury bond. So it, it was forcing those institutions and people to invest in, in riskier and riskier investments and, and assets, while at the same time, it was doing very little to create actual wage growth or job growth or productivity growth. You know, the Fed cannot build a road, educate a student or put a shovel in someone's hand. All the Fed can do is pump money into Wall Street. And, you know, that's what it did to an unprecedented level in the 2010s. But again, that doesn't benefit wage earners. It barely benefits them. It's like hyper trickle down economics. You're pumping this money into Wall Street, hoping it eventually trickles down to wage earners. But I think the verdict is in. You look at the decade of the 2010s, economic growth was weak. Productivity growth was weak. Wage growth was flat to negative, depending how you slice the numbers. But what really benefited from this system was the market for assets. Because again, those pension funds that once conservative money is being forced by these policies to invest in riskier and riskier assets, like tech stocks, like the exact kind of leveraged loans we've been talking about, the private equity firms used to buy out other companies, like uh, mortgage-backed securities. The money goes flooding in, searching for yield or searching for a return on investment into these markets. And I've just got to make the point that the Fed knew these, these programs were going to stoke up asset prices. They knew that that's how this was going to work. And their hope was that if the asset prices rise, you know, if the stock market's booming and the market for corporate debt is raging, it'll, it'll eventually trickle down to workers but there's this underlying undeniable fact that the wealthiest 1% of Americans own roughly 40% of all the assets in this country. You know, the wealthiest 10% own about 65% of all the assets. The bottom half of all Americans own only 5% of assets. So what I'm saying here is necessarily when the Fed pursues this policy to drive up asset prices, 
it is benefiting the richest of the rich. I mean, this is one of the key reasons why income inequality just soared in the 2010s. <laughs> and again, we're not talking about the divide between the rich and the poor. We're talking about the divide between the 1% and virtually everybody else. The Fed widened that divide and dramatically enriched asset owners over the last decade, while savers and wage earners really just tread tread water the whole time. Let me go back to uh, your writers, Watchdog Writers Group. Uh, you say that Eric mm-hmm. Schmidt and the foundation funded a lot of it. What did Eric Schmidt do in his professional life? So Eric Schmidt is a, a billionaire, no secret. Um, and this sounds odd, but the, the reality is I don't closely follow his career. Um, like, I'm being honest, I, he has left Google. I have never met him, but I've been in the same room with him at an event, a big public event that the New America Foundation held. And, and to me, look, this is very important. I run a nonprofit journalism institute at the University of Missouri. We are, we're funded by the Schmidt Family Foundation, but the relationship is one whereby I describe what my journalism outfit is doing. The Schmidt Foundation supports it, and you know I, I'm obligated to give reports about how well we did in the sense of what our authors are doing and what the students are doing, and um, but I don't have a relationship with the Schmidt, and, and I think that that's by design, and that's what helps create editorial independence. So, like, if I'm being totally honest, I don't closely follow Eric Schmidt and don't know um, what he's up to at all, really, um, except for what I see in the newspapers. And I'm kind of wrecking my brain. I haven't seen much about him lately. Well, the reason I brought it up, I'm wondering if look at it from both your side and his side. He's a billionaire over probably over many times and not maybe not many times but doesn't matter once you get up at that high you'd have no idea what it means anyway but his foundation is funding you you're being an independent journalist but you're basically in this book possibly stepping all over how he's made his money and how he's making his money now (laughs) i wish you hadn't brought that up um i'm kidding that's a joke i'm sorry um no that's all right i just wondered if you did this in today's world there's a lot of journalism being done like your institution, whether it be ProPublica. That came from uh, the folks out there in, in, the, in the West Coast that gave them $10 million. And, uh, and the journalism that comes out of these institutions often is slanted one way or the other, whether it's Coke funding on the right or these mm. other groups funding on the left. How is the public supposed to trust it? Oh, my God, this is such a great question. It's okay. I came from the world of newspapers. And I must hasten to point out, I love newspapers. I'm looking at my copy of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times on my desk right now. Newspapers also had an uneasy balance between the commercial interests of their advertisers and then the need for editorial independence. I experienced that every day. Uh, I really did at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Etc. Now, in the world of nonprofit-funded journalism, we face a tension between the desires, biases, or pressures of funders or philanthropies, and then the same need for editorial independence. And the question is, you know, how do you how do you deal with that, and how do you build a structure where the journalists can be fair? Okay, where the journalists can be independent. Now, let me I'll talk about this structure in a second. But let me please say why I'm doing this in the first place. I worked my whole career in newspapers and I worked at the Associated Press in 2012. I went to the New America Foundation, which was then headed by Steve Call, one of my absolute role models as a journalist. And I discovered this new model of nonprofit funded journalism. And I'll be honest, I fell in love with it. I 
I feel like nonprofit journalism allows you to think long term. I mean, I got to write a book about Coke Industries that took me at least six full time years, about seven years all in. And that's because I had a nonprofit setup that allowed me to not just focus on the short term. So I really believe in this model. Now, the key is managing that conflict you just brought up. And, you know, it's never perfect. Newspapers struggle with some of the same tensions with advertisers, as I said. And in our world, here's how we do it. The, the, the foundation, the Schmidt, gives money to the University of Missouri School of Journalism. That is the institutional framework. And then I work for the Missouri School of Journalism. And thank goodness we got places like the Missouri J School that still have very firm standards around editorial independence and ethics. So they act as the watchdog of the watchdogs. I've never thought of it that way. But the school is the watchdog, and it makes sure that the journalists operate independently, free from pressure from funders. Now, you point out, I'm writing a book right now that's quite critical of the American economic system as it exists. I have written three books now that um, examine the problem of income inequality, corporate concentration and income inequality. And um, I'm an independent journalist. That's all there is to it. I got this idea for the book about the Fed when I was reporting my previous book about Coke Industries and interviewed an incredibly sharp guy who was telling me about distortions in the asset markets and, and really explained to me the massive impact of the Fed's actions and quantitative easing. And I thought, that's a book, man. I've got to explain that to readers. That's This is the most important thing I've heard in years. And that's what got me on this point. And to be honest, I don't know if the Schmitz know today that I wrote the book. Um, I, I mean, I assume they do. It's been in the news and whatnot, but I pursue this stuff independently. And I do think, I, I really sincerely think, there there is a lot of potential and opportunity and promise in this model of nonprofit-funded journalism because it can support independent reporters. And uh, I'll tell you what, we're just, all of us reporters are out here trying to figure out how to make this thing work and how to keep doing our work. And I think that this is a great model we can use. Supposedly, Mr. Leonard, Walter Williams formed the first journalism school in the United States at the University of Missouri back in the early 1900s. And for years, when you would go to the press club here in Washington, get off the elevator, there was a plaque there that had the journalist's creed as written by Walter Williams. Um, I bring this up because I want to read you one of the last things said of the creed and ask you whether or not this would pass today as something journalists would follow. Mm. It's not very long, but the last paragraph says, I believe that the journalism which succeeds best and best deserves success fears God and honors man is stoutly independent, unmoved by pride of opinion or greed of power constructive, tolerant, but never careless, self-controlled, patient, always respectful of its readers, but always unafraid, is quickly indignant at injustice. I could go on, but I wanted to stop at that first part there. How many journalists today would admit that they fear God? (laughs) Wow. Um, God. That's a, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about this, but to be honest, like, uh, yeah, like in D.C., I think I, <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant to admit that I'm like a churchgoer, you know what I mean? Okay, here's what I take from that. Obviously, the notion of being God-fearing is not the fashion today. I think it's fair to say journalism is a sort of, secular dominated industry. But look, if I could translate that to a student today, um, 
I would I would translate the fear of God as being obligated to a larger ethical moral framework than yourself, being obligated to a larger ethical moral framework than one that's dominated by political parties, but being answerable to a higher ethical and moral question. And um, this is very important to me. It's not something we get to talk about a lot, but, you know, journalism really comes with a very large obligation. Uh, we're writing about real people here. I take that very seriously. Um, you know, the people I write about don't ask to be written about, and we're messing with real people's lives, and it's an obligation I feel all the time. Uh, I feel like our industry has abused its power. I think it's an abuse, for example, to chase uh, infotainment, to look to just make money, to go for the splashy story uh, over the public interest. And I do think there there are a lot of reporters out here who do feel like they are, do answer to a higher moral and ethical framework and who really are trying to work in the public interest. And, and those are the folks I want to work with and I try to support. And listen, I've probably rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I've written some pretty hard stuff and people probably have a low opinion of me, but I do struggle always to keep the public interest in mind and to keep the best practices in mind. I, I feel like we're, we're really answerable to the, the, to the public. And this is just critically important stuff. And I do get very frustrated with my own industry. And to me, I'll tell you where the core of that frustration lies. I feel like we really lost our way in the 80s onward in, in pursuing money above all, uh, provocation, uh, infotainment. We, we, we abandoned the public trust. And, and the people in the business who talked about the public trust were fuddy-duddies and, and like kind of marginalized people. And I don't think that that's right. Uh, I, I think that our business needs to earn back a lot of trust from readers and viewers and it's all about doing journalism in, in the service of the public interest. Now, could a lot of people who I've written tough things about point at me and call me a hypocrite or say that I haven't done the job as well as I should have done the job? I'm sure. I'm sure they could. But I, I sincerely try to make my boss be the public interest. I write books that I feel are important for readers to understand and then secondly, you know, get at the truth as best you can. There are a lot of people in my business who are doing this. Getting at the truth as best you can, uh, even throwing your own biases and proclivities under the bus when you need to to report reality. So, yeah, I mean, gosh, you're asking a great question. I don't think we, we ask this question enough. Um, and that's how that's how I'd put it. I think we need to be doing journalism in the public interest at all times. and That's really important. As long as I have you and you're at the University of Missouri Journalism School, I want to throw another one at you from Walter Williams, mm -hmm. because we're right in the middle of a controversy that's very political, very touchy. And if you lived in Washington uh, during the last campaign, there's a story that only the New York Post ran that the rest mm. of the mainstream media ignored. Oh, yes. On the Hunter Thompson, Hunter Thompson, that's how old I am, uh, on the Hunter Biden <laughs> laptop. But the reason, before I do that, I want to read you what Walter Williams said, the dean of the journalism school at Missouri who started all this. He says, um, I believe that suppression of the news for any consideration other than the welfare of society is indefensible. First of all, do you think, or what is your reaction to the suppression of the news on Hunter Biden's laptop? And what do you think about the Walter Williams comment? Well, I think Walter Williams' comment is right on point. Um, I think 
the Hunter Biden story, uh, to, to be honest with you, I, I got to be honest. I, I think it's a real black eye. I think it's a real black eye for my business. Um, we are in wild times. Uh, I am not one to glibly second guess print journalism editors who have such a hard job at the Journal Times Post down the list. Um, I'm not going to defend cable news people, I'm sorry to say. But look, a lot of people faced a lot of tough choices right before the election with the crazy Hunter Biden laptop story. However, at the end of the day, we have to own it is a big black eye for our business. And I'll just go a little further and maybe get myself in trouble here. But there is a reporter named Peter Schweitzer, who's who's admittedly a conservative guy funded by conservative people. But he's a heck of a reporter. And Peter Schweitzer released a book I'm looking at right now called uh, Secret Empires back in 2018, which really unspooled in pretty solid detail uh, a lot of Hunter Biden's deeply problematic business relationships in China and Ukraine. Um, and, And it was not picked up. And just... The news is the news and the evidence is the evidence. And we've got to report things that make us uncomfortable or cut against our political uh, proclivities uh, or preferences. And this is, but again, I've got to emphasize huge caveat. The editors on the desk in 2020 faced with this Hunter Biden story on the laptop, had good reason to be skeptical. I had a chance to talk to one of the New York Post reporters who broke it. It's a crazy story. Doesn't make any sense. Like this guy left a laptop at a store where the owner was blind and like didn't even see. I mean, there's a lot of questions, but I think it's very fair to say in retrospect, there was huge overcorrection on that. Uh, you You know, banning the story on Twitter, the, the complete lack of follow-up from the legion of many great reporters we have, none of that served our business well. It's a black eye, and there's still a lot of news, I think. There's still a lot of news. A lot of it's been validated uh, or by the, by the New York Times, which has just done incredible work around, like, the cobalt market in Africa where Hunter Biden had some business interests. But... There's more reporting to be done there, and I think it it needs to be done, is what I would say. And the laptop thing is a black eye that our industry needs to grapple with, but should in no way erase the hard work done day after day after day by print reporters in this country who do get it right way often. I'm sorry, who do get it right way more often than they get it wrong. Last question. When you did the book Cokeland the Koch brothers story in 2019. Did you get any uh, kickback, feedback, negative response from the Koch family for that book? Oh, such a great question. Um, With my method, I reported that book for years. And then for the final year before the book came out, I engaged in a very deep, long fact-checking process with Coke Industries. And this I do this for everybody. I will send my sources a memo that outlines what's in the book with an emphasis on the controversial parts, and they have full fair chance to respond. Those conversations got tense. There's no two ways about it. I was on the phone a lot with the Coke Industries PR team. Voices were raised. Uh, we had a couple in-person meetings where folks were leaning forward in their chair. It was a little tense. But we got through it. And when the book came out, um, I, I, you know, I, the, 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 the team, the Coke PR team, Steve Lombardo and Dave Desiak, uh and, and their entire team absolutely acted above board. I mean, did, did they promote the book? No, they didn't promote the book. Did they, did they go after it with personal attacks and ad hominem attacks? No, they didn't. Um, it, it was a civil process. And they, they handled it, in my mind, professionally, and I tried to handle it from my end professionally. And um, I've always been pretty glad, like, 
that, that it worked out that way. Uh, I was nervous, you know, but uh, no, they, they handled it really well. Um, all things considered, it, it was, it was a tough book, but I feel like it was also fair and showed the, the, the benefits, the strengths of this organization, but also some of the downside. Our guest for the last hour has been Christopher Leonard. And we said earlier that he's the current director of the Watchdog Writers Group that he founded out at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. The book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. We thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.